You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, as I look around this room, I see a whole lot of different statuses, a whole lot of different statuses. And what I mean by that is usually in a room of this size with this many people, there's a lot of different married statuses. Some of you are married. Some of you are divorced. Some of you are remarried. Some of you are widowed. Some of you are widowered. There's all different kinds of statuses, and there should be because those different statuses really feed into those different streams of water, if you will, feed into the one stream that is the church that has all these different currents and confluences coming together. That's the church. And all those different convergent confluences tells us, reminds us, and the world around us that, ah, we have been redeemed. Our coming together is a declaration that despite all these different statuses, all of us have been redeemed. But what I want to tell you this morning was what the Apostle Paul wants to tell us is that every single one of us in this room, regardless of your official legal status, every single one of us in this room, spiritually speaking, is married. Every single person, regardless of your age, regardless of your station in life, every single person in this room is married. The Apostle Paul tells us, you are married to the law. You are in Adam. You are under the covenant of works. That begins at your conception. As soon as you begin to exist in the world, you are married to the law. You are in union with Adam. You are under the covenant of works. Every single human being on the planet ever comes into existence married to the law. And that word is under the lordship, under the sovereignty, under the the, the rulership of the law. But at conversion... You are wed to another. At conversion, you enter into what's called married to Christ. You have union with Christ. You are not under law. You are in Christ. You are under the covenant of grace, no longer under the covenant of law. You are in Christ, under grace. And you cannot be unmarried. You don't get to. Nobody can be unmarried. You are either married to law or you are married to Christ. It's one way or the other. You don't get to choose the way to live. There is a lordship in place. It's either the law or it is the Lord. But when the union changes, whether you're married to law, if that union changes and now you're married to the Lord, everything changes because of that union. And I guess as I was thinking about this and praying about this and preparing for this this week, it brought to mind uh, a visual illustration. I'm reminded of that wonderfully produced 1997 cinematic masterpiece. I believe we have a clip here. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Dennis Rodman, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Some of you are going, I don't know who either of those people are. That's okay. There's grace for that, too. I kind of want to know what was it like in that conference room when someone pulls out a yellow legal pad and goes, I got an idea. We're going to get Jean-Claude Van Damme and we'll get Dennis Rodman. And someone said, genius, I'll produce it. 
The movie is called Double Team. And I don't know if you heard the refrain. It's in there about 16 times. They don't play by the rules. They don't play by the rules. And I thought about it this week. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to say to those of us who are no longer under law, but are in Christ. We don't play by the rules. That's where Paul's going with all this. Now, I know that's a weird example. It's a strange illustration. And that the illustration actually breaks down after a while. But that's okay because the illustration that Paul's going to use in Romans chapter 7 also breaks down because it is so difficult. But the Apostle Paul really wants people in the churches at Rome to understand this. And I pull this from Romans 7. I pull this from Dennis Rodman and Jean-Claude Van Damme. Double team. The big idea for the morning goes like this. Dead people don't play by the rules. It's true. Dead people don't play by the rules. Now that might sound silly and like, uh, okay, I kind of don't understand what's happening right now. Stick with me. It is a profound truth that applies to every single person in this room. Dead people don't play by the rules. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6. As you're turning there, if you haven't already gotten there, I want to remind you, the overarching theme and thrust of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. That's very good news. That is the gospel. The righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. Now then, Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Paul writes, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not on the old way of the written code. This is God's Word, and this passage is actually a wonderful presentation and a proclamation of the Gospel. Our nuanced definition of the gospel that we use down here, the gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. Well, finally, at long last, we come to Romans chapter 7. Way back in the summer of this year, as we were putting together our preaching calendar, looking down through time at when we would come to each passage on which particular Sunday, I saw the end of November Romans 7. And I had that kind of pit in my stomach because Romans 7 is challenging. So as I woke up Monday morning of this past week, I had that experience. Way back 4,000 years ago, a man named Job had quite an encounter and quite an experience himself. And he wrote about his feelings. In Job chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, Job, 4,000 years ago, writes this. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Now, Job wasn't talking about Romans 7, but I am. All week long, I've been looking at Romans 7 going, oh, this is so difficult. 
libraries of books have been written trying to explain what exactly Romans 7, 1 to 6 means. There's a whole lot of debate and a whole lot of argument about it. I'm not going to pretend to solve it this morning, but I think I can help to serve it up a little bit more digestibly, perhaps. Basically, Romans 7, 1 to 6 breaks down like this. Verse 1 is essentially Paul's assertion that the law has binding lordship over us, but we are freed from it. That is his assertion that is sort of the synthesis coming out of all chapter 6. Romans 7, verse 1 is essentially the summary synthesis of everything he has said in chapter 6. So he makes an assertion in chapter 7, verse 1. Then, in verses 2 and 3, he's simply going to employ an illustration to try to amplify, explain, and to highlight what he means in verse 1. And then in verse 4, it is his theological implication. It's the so what. It's, hey, this is true, I'm going to illustrate it. Verse 4, here's the whole theme and the thrust of the passage. And then verse 5 and 6 is just more explanation, amplification, and application of what he has said in verse 4. So just those six quick verses, that's what Paul's doing. Now Paul begins in Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers? He, again, actually he says, are you so ignorant? It's only four times in all of Paul's writings will he ask the question that way. We sanitize it, we make it nice and friendly in the ESV. Do you not know? No, it's, are you so ignorant, brothers? So Paul does something brilliant here. He is an apostle with the office of authority over them. But he calls them brothers and sisters, Adelphos. He puts himself right in their midst at their level. He's not dominating them. He's not trying to shame them. He's just saying, listen, there is a default human assumption. There is a tendency for the people of God, having come through conversion, to want to go into error. And Paul now wants to address that. He says there in verse 1, the law binds, that's not what we're after. Do not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Now, Paul will mean different things when he says the law in the book of Romans. Sometimes he means just general God's rule of the cosmos. Sometimes he means a specific government. Most often he means the Mosaic law, the Torah. And that's usually a nutshell or a microcosm of the Old Covenant that was bilateral, that was transactional. You had to do a thing to get a thing. And if you did a thing, God would do a thing. That's what Paul will mean when he says the law. It's the old covenant system. He says, I'm speaking to those who know the law. Now that's really important because Paul's not just speaking to Jewish people. He's speaking to Gentile Christians as well that would have been familiar with all of that and knew what that meant, all that, that had, in, all that had the, the trappings of it there. Even the Gentile people would have been familiar with that. He says that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Paul says essentially dead people aren't under the law. Now he phrases it a little bit lengthier and he says that the law is binding on someone only so long as they are alive. But he absolutely means something very specific here and it is in response to whatever was going on in the churches of Rome at that time. We have to remember we're still dealing with the section on sanctification. We've come through the doctrines of condemnation, chapters 1 through 3, justification, chapters 4 and 5. Now in chapters 6 and 7, we're talking about sanctification. And we have to know that because sometimes people will skip and dip and they'll pull verses out of Romans 6 or Romans 7 and they'll think, you see here, this is how you get saved. It's not what Paul's saying. He's moved on in his argument to the doctrine of sanctification. Different, very different from justification. 
there was apparently a group of people who were beginning to have influence in the churches at Rome that were saying, hey, great, people have received the gospel, they've believed the gospel, now we have to implement some system of rule and order and conduct to control. Paul says, mm-mm, dead people don't play by the rules. Dead people don't play by the rules. Stop it. That's not who we are. That's not what we do. That is everyone's default policy is to implement some sort of code of conduct. And Paul says, we don't do that. It's a really, really, really big deal. So Paul's going to illustrate what he means by this. In verse 2 of chapter 7, Paul says, Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. It's actually not what it says, but for those of you who are old enough to remember the princess bride, that is the wedding scene of the princess bride, Paul's going to draw from marriage to make his illustration, and the illustration breaks down really quickly. But here's what he says in verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law, the word is under his authority, is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. He calls on this familiar concept of marriage. Now, you have to remember, Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee, a Jewish Pharisee, and they loved to sit around talking about all the different intricacies and loopholes of the marriage covenant. Do you remember they even come to Jesus one time? They say, hey, Jesus, we got one for you. They're going to try to trap him. They say, hey, Jesus, let's just say there's a woman and she's married, but the husband dies. And so she marries the brother, but then he dies. And then she marries the brother, but then he dies. At this point, Jesus is going, this is a dangerous lady. Okay? She should not be allowed to remarry. But then seven brothers die. Now what happens? Who gets the estate? They love to try to obsess about the marriage covenant. So I think this is fresh in Paul's background in his mind as he's thinking about this. But Paul's going to say, listen, we all know this. We all get this. A woman is only bound to the covenant of marriage to her husband as long as the husband is alive. But as soon as he dies... She is released. Let me give a very quick personal illustration of Paul's illustration. Some of you may know that in the summer of 2014, my dad passed away. That was in the summer. And then the fall of 2014, my mom remarried. So that was, candidly, transparently, a pretty quick turnaround for yours truly to do a marry and then a bury thing just about five months apart. And my mom dealt with a whole lot of guilt and shame over this. But I had to keep telling her, Mom, it's okay. You're no longer married to Dad on account of his being dead and all. Like, it's over. That, it, the contract, the covenant is concluded. It's finished. It's okay. Now, the man that my mom married, he had lost his wife in June of that year as well. And he dealt with all kinds of shame and guilt. Oh, what are people going to say? What are people going to say? And I'm going to say, and I said to him, they're going to say, you're no longer married to her on account of her being dead and all. So I'm glad they didn't get married like two weeks later. That would have been a little bit icky. Five months was fine, but they had to deal with that. And I had to keep reminding them, you're no longer married. There has been a death. It has occurred. It's over. And that freed them to be re connected, reunited with somebody else. Now, Paul wants us to understand that, both us today and the readership in Rome. He wants to have that same understanding and apply it to the life of the Christian. Someone that has and experiences and enjoys union with Christ is no longer under the rules. There has been a death. 
That's his illustration in Romans 2 and 3. Let me read it again in verse 3. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. That's Paul's illustration. But then here's where the illustration gets weird. Verse 4 is the whole theological implication. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. This is interesting. This is where Paul's illustration goes very, very strange. We sort of assume when we're reading verses 2 and 3, hey, a woman is under the law, but if her husband dies, she's free to go again. But in verse 4, Paul says, actually, <laughs> you're not the woman. You died does that mean we're the law? No, of course not. This is why it's so difficult to illustrate. There's nothing else in the human story that is comparable or compatible with this. Paul's trying to make an illustration. It doesn't quite work. No, you're the ones who have actually died. You're, you're not the law, and you're dying doesn't mean that the law is now freed up to live with somebody else. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying a death has occurred. There is a separation. There's a freedom there. We are the ones who have died. We who are in Christ who have union with Christ, died to the law. Now, this is deeply theological, just this one verse, so let me try to unpack it as quickly as I can. The wages of sin is death. We've seen that at the end of chapter 6. And the demand of the law is perfection. Paul said that over and over again. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the demand of the law, perfection, and he paid the wages of our sin. This is, this is the gospel. This is what we celebrate at communion. We'll do that next Sunday, Lord willing, when we gather together. Since we are now found in Christ, we have functionally died with him at Calvary on the cross. We have died to the law. No more rules because dead people don't play by the rules. The law no longer has sway on us because we have died to it. Let me see if I can illustrate it like this. Again, the demand of the law is perfection. And the exact moral righteousness that is found in heaven. That's what the law does. It says, this is the character, the morality of God in heaven. And failure to, to comply with that law requires death, curse, separation. That's what the law prescribes and requires. And the law is good. So the law becomes this agency of death. I view myself in the light of the law, and I'm forced to recognize that I deserve death. That's what the law does. It says, hey, this is the standard. This is you. Ugh. You don't meet up. That's right. I die through the law, but I also die to the law. This is what Paul's saying. All right, let me explain. Let's say that I am accused of some horribly heinous, awful, very bad crime. And all of the evidence is stacked up against me. I am red-handed, dead to rights. I'm guilty. This heinous crime that I have committed demands and requires death. But right before the judge pronounces sentence, I hold my breath. And I, and I expire. Now, I know the medically trained among you will say, you can't actually do that. Something in your brain is going to kick in. You're going to survive and then be really embarrassed. I get it. It's an illustration. Let's say I somehow am able to hold my breath and I die and I'm dead and I'm pronounced dead. Then that's pretty significant. The judge has no choice but to throw out the case because he can't pronounce sentence of punishment on a dead man because I'm already dead. See, 
I'm no longer subject to all the restrictions of the law because I'm dead. He can't condemn me to die because I'm dead, do you see? But then, a few days later, I'm revived. And I'm walking around, woo, I'm alive, I'm alive. Nobody can rearrest me. Nobody can pronounce judgment on me because I have died through the law. Not just to the law, but through the law. The punishment was death and to the law because it no longer has any sway. I can't tell you how many Christians I encounter that have no idea that this is their story. That they really feel like I found Jesus and he sort of just joined against me. He just kind of fixed me up. He just put some shiplap up here in the corner and now I'm all good. That's not what Jesus does. It's not what Jesus does. You are dead. You died. You are dead, dead. And we don't miss you. We don't. Christian, think of yourself. You were dead. This is what Paul says. You died. You didn't just get better. You didn't just get Jesus as an additive self-improvement program. That is not the gospel. You were dead. But wait. It gets way better. It gets way better because I don't actually have to hold my breath and die, thanks be to God, even though I am guilty of multiple heinous sins against the Holy God. Instead, the death of Christ that he actually died is applied to me. I am found in him. It's like he held his breath and he did die, despite all of the things being fully God and fully man that he could have survived that ordeal on the cross, he chose not to though he was innocent. He died that death that I deserve. In fact, Galatians 3.13, Paul puts it more precisely. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse that I am in my place. And then Hebrews 6 reminds us even further to carry on the legal language. Hebrews 6 says that Jesus is our advocate. He is our defense attorney. He stands before God, the sovereign judge, and he says, my father... He's guilty. All of the things that he said, all of the things that he's thought, all of the things that he's done, he's guilty. But he is in me. And you have already judged me. You cannot judge him twice because he died. And the father says, I love you, boy. He's forgiven. That's the gospel. You died in Christ and you are alive again. And then it gets even better still. His life and his righteousness are also then applied to me. Rather than having been born into a life of Adam under curse, I am now in Christ and I live a Godward life in his power. And again, it's not that my actual walking around life has really changed, but the way God chooses to view me has changed and that's what changes my literal reality. So why in the world would we want to try and impose a system of rule on the people who have actually already died to it? That's not sanctifying, that's actually binding. Now the way we died was that Christ literally and physically died and God accepts his death as though it were ours, as though we were actually present, but we weren't. That's grace. And why? Why did Jesus do that and why did God the Father accept that? So that we could belong to another, so that we could be bound to a new Lord, to free us from what was, so that we could be united with that which will be, for all eternity, specifically, so that we could be united with the one that is alive forevermore and found in him, so that 
He's going to say in verse 4, so that we would be able to bear fruit, to produce that which is pleasing to God. That is how we are sanctified. God places us in Christ, and then we walk around doing the good works that He prepared in advance for us to do. That's Ephesians 2.10. Because we love Him, not because we're supposed to. Because we love Him, because we want to, not because we have to. Listen, this hasn't happened very often, but there have been some times when I just served my wife out of obligation, and she can tell. She's smart, that one. And then there have been those maybe two or three times when I just served her because I loved her, because I found her radiant and beautiful, and I just loved her and I wanted to serve her. She can tell that too. We don't serve simply because we have to out of obligation, because we love this person to whom we are now wed. He is to be our precious treasure. Peter, uh, yeah, 1 Peter 2, verse 7 says. Well, very quickly, verses 5 and 6. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. This is a bombshell that Paul just drops. The Jewish people, as well as Jewish Christians, as well as good, upright, moral, standing, decent Gentiles, believe that the law was actually in place to curb sin and to make them more moral. Paul says, actually... The law is really good, but what it does is it stirs the drink. All the stuff is in the glass, but then you drop the spoon in and stir. The spoon's not bad. All the stuff is there. The spoon just stirs it up. That's what the law does. It actually stirs up our sinful passions, which we're working our members to bear fruit for death, the stuff that brings death and separation from God. Verse 6, ah, but now we are released from the law. We have been set free. Something happened. We didn't do it ourselves. We are released from the law because we died to that which held us captive so that we, and here's the operative payoff verb, we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I hear so many Christians trying to settle. Okay, we need to go back and just try to be good, moral, and decent according to the laws of decency and morality. Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. We are called to so much more than that. Dead people don't play by the rules. So, very quickly, let me just give, in closing, four summary implications from this passage. Number one goes like this. Live free or die hard. That's right. I couldn't help myself. That's yet one more overproduced, explosion-filled movie from 2007 so that the younger people in the room could thwack their palms to their forehead and go, okay, boomer, that's enough. I'm actually not a boomer, just so you know. But it occurred to me that, yes, that is precisely what Paul is saying. Live free, not according to some bond as though you were still under law. You've been released from it. You died to it. You are no longer under law. It has no sway over you. Paul wants his readers and us to understand that freedom comes from living under a new lordship as opposed to still trying to add to the conversion that was accomplished on our behalf by somebody else. It is finished. Live free. Or if you try to start adding all of this other stuff, you die hard, meaning you experience separation and calcification and you get hardened of heart away from your God. When we return to a list of do's and don'ts, we're being robbed of the life to which we have been raised. And we actually, functionally feel the pangs of death and separation again because that is not what God has for us. Instead, we want to be reminded to think rightly and to feel deeply. 
We were dead. It's like you held your breath and died, and yet God has raised you to walk in newness of life. You were united with another that only brought death in the old age, but now you're united to the one who is good and who unlocks true life and true liberty. Second point goes like this. Sanctification is practicing your union with Christ. We said this in our Gospel of John series a while back. We said it last Sunday. It bears saying again, sanctification is the season of life in which a person learns to live as though they are truly forgiven. Just learning to live forgiven. They begin to bask in the reality that God will never ever discover anything about them that hasn't already been paid for at the cross of Christ. You will never ever ever do, think, say anything that has not already been paid for at the cross of Christ. Doesn't mean there won't be consequences. There might be. There probably will be but to learn to live forgiven. Those who learn to live that way, they increasingly consider all that it means to be in Christ, to have His Spirit indwelling us, and the fact that Christ is in the Father. I don't have to find and seek God. I am found by Him already. What would it look like? And how would it be if I was really and truly completely loved? What if I lived as though that was true because it actually, of course, is true more than I will ever appreciate? Third point, sanctification always looks like serving. That's how you know it's happening. Sanctification looks like serving. All too often I hear about people trying to help God out with spiritual disciplines. And hear me, spiritual disciplines are good so long as you're not trying to achieve or accomplish or obtain anything trying to participate with God in their sanctification by doing all these good and decent things like prayer and fasting and quiet times and giving and Instagramming your highlighting of your scripture path. Oh, that's great. That's fine. But if that's all that it ever is and it's only for you, then you're missing out what God actually has in mind. In this passage alone, Paul makes it really clear that this new union into which we have been raised is for the purpose of bearing fruit. And then only the Spirit can actually produce that fruit. That's our new way of life. And what is that fruit? It's always for somebody else. We serve because of our confidence and affection for our King. We are unleashed to serve others and give away our means and our resources, even our comfort and convenience because of how much we love Jesus. That's what your sanctification looks like, is that it's aimed at somebody else. It's not that you can suddenly memorize the entire Greek New Testament. That's great, but not if it doesn't result in serving somebody else. Sanctification always looks like serving. Well, the fourth point, see, a Christian is someone who has died through the law and to the law. A Christian is someone who has been raised to walk in newness of life, to live right now the indestructible life of the resurrection of Jesus. And in that life, a Christian is married to a king. A Christian is married to a king. I know that that marriage language can be a bit weird for a lot of us in this room, especially if we're guys. So let me just state it like this. You are in an eternal binding covenant with a person. It's not just that you decided to believe some truths, although that's a part of it. You are in an eternal binding covenant with a person who is good. And that union or that covenant ought to change everything about our thoughts, words, and deed. And yes, it takes some time to learn how to be married. In my case, it'll be 25 years in December. I'm still learning how to be married. And by and large, I'm not so great at it. No amens. 
But that's what our sanctification is, is being reminded that we are married to a king. See, God is not interested in a bunch of people who try hard to keep rules. Do you know that? So many of my friends outside the church believe that that's what church is. It's just a bunch of people who are trying to keep the rules who can't and so are angry, bitter, resentful people who are not much fun to be around. That's not what God wants. Instead, what God wants is a whole bunch of people who look at the world the way He does, who live in the world the way Jesus did, who love in the world the way He does. That's what God is after. Not a bunch of people who try to keep the rules, but a bunch of people who are little instances of his son Jesus who are being made ever increasingly into the likeness of his son. Having experienced this conversion, we are not now trying to live according to some set of rules so that we can please God and earn his favor, even in our thinking. No, 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 no. We are instead trying to be mindful and persistently aware that we are now in covenantal union with this person who is good and worth our affection and our attention always. To look at this Jesus Look what he was like. Look how he engaged with people. Look how he interacted with people. And they go, that guy who is God, who died innocently for the sake of the guilty, I love that guy. Right. Therein lies your sanctification. Dead people don't play by the rules. And we have been raised to walk in newness of the resurrected life of Jesus. May we increasingly be conformed to his image. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage and for the person of Jesus. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, who is still in union with Adam in the covenant of works bound by that law, I pray, God, that above and beyond all explanation or expectation, you would raise the blinds by your Spirit and you would unite them with Christ that they would step out of death and into life. Father, perhaps there are some this morning who have agreed with us some truths for many, many, many years, but have never understood or thought of themselves as having died and therefore not being under the rules. And that we as a church do not need to try to impose rules, but simply live our indwelling spirit. Perhaps there are some this morning, Lord, who need to come to terms with that. So would you do that? For the rest of us, Father who are trying ever increasingly to keep our eyes turned to Jesus. Would you increasingly hold him before our hearts and minds, make him more beautiful, more believable, that we would fall ever more deeply in love with him. And thank you for our union with our King. We pray all these things in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.